welcome to the New Life Fellowship podcast. New Life Fellowship is a community of grace in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Our goal is to teach and share and experience the life of Jesus Christ together. You're about to listen to a message from one of our meetings. Please make sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca. Without further ado, let's listen in. Well, we're just we're going to open up with a word of prayer uh, and get get into it this morning. Lord Jesus, thank you, thank you that we have you, we have your mind, we have access to your thoughts, and and you have something special for us. And I look forward, Lord Jesus, to what that is this morning. We're going to trust you to both be the teacher, but also to be the one that makes it real to us, and that we might experience life in you. Looking forward to what you have in store this morning. <clears throat> in your name, we pray. Amen. Well, as a, as a little kid, uh, what I would do, I was always curious, I was always trying to figure out how things worked. Uh, I, I needed to understand. I needed to, to figure that out. So I don't know if anyone else did this, but I remember standing there with the uh, refrigerator door, <clears throat> opening and closing the door, trying to figure out where the button was to turn the light on and off. I did not climb into the refrigerator. I want to make that very clear. Uh, but I, I could see there's there a moment where the light went off. And then I would find, find that switch. And then I'd play with it until my parents slapped my hand. Uh, but then, then there's other things. I had to figure out how did car engines work? And, and how did this work? And how did that work? And I would, I would take things apart and most of the time put it back together again. So what I, was, I had that curious mindset of trying to understand how things operate and how things work. And, and that's carried on now to try to understand people and, and try to understand how do, how do people operate? How do they function and in, 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 in what goes through their mind and how do they tick? And I find it interesting that despite all of our incredible advancements in technology, people really haven't changed. I mean, think about it. One of the most famous writers of all time is a guy named Shakespeare. And he wrote those plays some 400 years ago, and yet they still resonate with people today. They're still popular because people can relate to those characters. They can relate to the Macbeths and the Hamlets and the Ophelias and so forth. Because those themes that he was writing about were writing about in terms of things like, like pride and, and jealousy and envy and, and control and, and all kinds of those, those human conditions that we all struggle with and can all relate to in some way. And, and so even though that's 400 years ago, things haven't changed very much. I mean, ask Barry. He was there when Shakespeare released them 400 years ago. That's a cheap shot. I get it. I get it. But the reality is the reason why things haven't changed very much is because we could trace those human problems, those human conditions, all the way back to our first parents, Adam and Eve, and, and what they experienced in the garden and as a result of their sin in the garden. And so the question is, well, not everyone acts in those ways. Not everyone is obviously acting in the ways like Macbeth and Hamlet or villains and so forth. So the question is, why do some act that way and why do others act other ways? Why do we struggle in the unique way that we do? And, and what people have discovered is really there's three, three parts or three elements that go into deciding how someone acts and how someone behaves. And, and it's the, your, your nature, your nurture, and your environment. So your nature, that's, that's your DNA. Those are your, the, the genes that you received from your parents, that received from your grandparents, from your great-grandparents, and so forth. And, and that just basically is how you're, you're wired in some ways, physically at least. So for example, someone like Shaquille O'Neal. 
seven foot three. Uh, when he entered the NBA, he was almost 300 pounds. When he left the NBA, I think he was over 400 pounds. Uh, so a big man. And when you're that big and that strong, you get to kind of choose which sport you want to do. If you want to do basketball, football, wrestling, boxing, you pretty much choose the one you want, and you're likely going to be successful. Right? When you're that big, it's really hard to stop when you're two feet from the basket and you just do this. And so his DNA, his body type, in many ways determined his outcome and what he was going to do in life. That's true with, with people who are, are attractive by the world standards, right? The, the Brad Pitts and then the Kim Kardashians and the Greg Balforts of the world, right? They, they have these appearance that basically sets them apart to be certain things. And just they don't really have to do very much for that, right? And so some have a natural aptitude athletic-wise with physical beauty, and even some have a natural aptitude towards math and sciences or artistics and arts and languages and so forth, right? So there's, there's a nature aspect to it, just basically your DNA and how you're wired, which really you don't get to choose, right? You have no, no choice about, about certain elements of your physical body, right? And then there's the nurture element of things, and, and the nurture is basically how life circumstances around you go to shape who you are, right? So this is based on your, your parents and, and the upbringing you received. Did you grow up in a, in a two-parent home or in a single-parent home? Was dad around or was dad gone? Um, what, what kind of dynamic did mom and dad have? Were, were you the oldest, the youngest, the middle child? Was it a big family? Was it a small family? What was the dynamic going on there? What were your friends like? Did you experience bullying? Uh, were you the popular kid? Were you the, the rejected kid, the nerdy kid, the athletic kid? Uh, how, how did your parents discipline you and all that? And then what about the traumas you might have experienced? Again, maybe you were bullied. Uh, maybe, maybe you grew up in a, in a poor household. Maybe you grew up in a rich household and you were spoiled. Maybe you were an immigrant coming to Canada, or maybe you were born here in Canada. Maybe you were sexually abused as a child. <clears throat> All of those events, and, and basically even how they, people respond to those events, that goes into the nurturing element of that. And, and we cannot in any way understate the value that that does to go to shape who you are today, how it shapes how you perceive things and how you, how you understand the world around you. So that's the, the nurture element of things. And then there's the environment around us. And this one, I think, is subtle. This is the one that we don't tend to recognize as much. I mean, it's, we recognize the nature part because we can see that. We, we recognize the, the nurture part because we can identify you know, how we are raised and the parenting and the attitudes that, that parents and others had towards us. But the, the environment part, I think that's far more subtle. And, and the environment basically is determined by the larger culture as a whole. And maybe another way to think of it is, what is the larger philosophy of the day? How does the world understand and approach knowledge and approach life in general? Now, we're, we're working our way through 2 Corinthians right now. And, and Paul wrote 2 Corinthians, and he wrote many of the other New Testament letters. But all of the, the New Testament letters were written in a, in a, in a short period of time between the, the crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and to about 100 AD. So in that time period, all of these New Testament letters are written, meaning they're written to basically the same culture, this, this Roman or, or Grecian culture, which would have been known as classical Greek. And, and so this is the audience he's writing to. 
Now, this is the people that this culture is largely formed by famous names like, like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. And, and if we have like a really oversimplified understanding of this, this classical Greek philosophy, this culture at the time, is that there's this knowledge that, that they were part of something greater than themselves, that there was something bigger that started all of this, and they were along for the ride, and what that was was God. That very much at the center of everything was God or the gods. Now, for, for the Romans, it would have been the Roman gods, right? So we know Zeus or Jupiter or maybe Diana or Artemis and, and, uh, and all the other uh, gods of their day. That was sort of at the center of everything. And they, the people were then sort of the, the small bit players in that. And that's sort of how they, they looked at things. So Paul's evangelism of the day, if you think about it, was basically he didn't have to try to introduce the idea of God. He basically needed to shift their allegiance from one God to the God, right? Away from Zeus to Jesus. <clears throat> we see a great example of this in the, the Mars Hill Address, right? Where he uses the unknown God as a way to try to shift and say, hey, listen, these gods over here, they can't do anything for you. But let me tell you about the God the God of, of history. And so that was what Paul was doing. Now, a big, heavy part of classical Greek was this logic and, and rhetoric. And again, we see that in those thinkers of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. And, and so this, this idea of, of arguments and back and forth kind of prevailed for a long time, basically up until the, about the 15th, 16th century in the medieval times when it began to be replaced. Now, at this point, it, it did morph and change over time. And, and you know, the, the church became uh, seen as the dominant religion around 400 AD. But what ended up happening is, is God, as we know him, was essentially replaced with superstition. Where, where, and that was a powerful tool because people didn't know how to read and they didn't read the scriptures. In fact, they were told not to read the scriptures. And that's why they kept the, tr the scriptures translated in Latin because nobody understands Latin. Even back then, nobody understood Latin. And so no one could read and no one knew what the Bible said. And so some people could use that to their advantage. So some bad actors would manipulate people through that superstition in order to control them, maybe to get their money or to have their power or to threaten them. Whatever it was, they could use that. And so superstition became the dominant thing that people were trusting in. Well, that began to change then in around the early 1600s when modern philosophy came around. Right. So this is the, the, the time of the Renaissance and the Enlightenment and the Age of Reason. And basically what happens is that that new uh, philosophy discards the old philosophy. It replaces it with something new. It rejects what came before. And so they rejected the superstition, which was good. But with it, unfortunately, they also rejected God. And so the oversimplified understanding of modern philosophy is that no longer is God at the center of everything, but mankind is. We are. And mankind becomes the dominant central element of all this. And, and now what matters <clears throat> is only that which you can observe. <clears throat> so they keep the logic, they keep the rhetoric part of things uh, consistent, but now, it's, now science takes over. And so anything that can be observed, anything that can be measured, anything that can be experimented and repeated, that's, that's real. But anything that is, requires a faith, that's superstition, and that's old, and we've rejected it. We've essentially don't need God anymore because we've replaced God with us. Is it any wonder around this time, Darwin comes up with his theory of evolution. 
And it fit in perfectly because man at that point was looking for a replacement for God. Man was looking for an excuse or an opportunity to not need God in the story. That man was a story. And so over time, we just are replaced with the Big Bang, replaced with evolution, where we just slowly evolve into man, where man becomes now the top of the food chain. It's from this time period we have that famous phrase, I think, therefore, I am. Right? I, I almost wonder, even if in that phrase, it's sort of a, a, a double meaning to that. Right? I think, therefore, I am gives me consciousness, but it's almost, I think, therefore, I am. Remember, that's the name God gave himself. And so we see now mankind becomes at the key of it. Man, mankind becomes at the center of all things. In fact, it was during this time where that famous phrase was developed that God is dead and we have killed him. Because man didn't need God anymore. Man was his own God in this sense. And so we've outgrown God. And, and, and now that, that line of thinking dominated really for a few hundred years until postmodern thought began to take hold. Now, postmodern thought, you, can, you could trace it all the way back to the late 1700s with a man named Frederick Nietzsche. But it, it really didn't take hold until about the last 50 to about 80 years. So last 50, 80, 80 years, postmodern thought begins to, to take over. And, and it begins is now, I think today, the dominant thinking of our Western culture, of our media, and even of our politics. So an oversimplified understanding of postmodern thought is that the self is now at the center. So follow the progression. You went from God being at the center, or the gods, to mankind being at the center, to now the self, me at the center. And so in a way, we could summarize this way, that postmodern philosophers had, had um, uh, believed that modern philosophers had it wrong, right? Remember, modern philosophers thought God is dead. Well, postmodern philosophers could basically say God is not dead because I'm God. I'm the one at the center of all this. But like modern thought that rejected that which came before it, postmodern thought also rejects what came before it, right? And so what ends up happening now is they've rejected that ordered and systematic thinking that modern thought was. Remember, everything was based on science. Can we test it? Can we observe it? Can we systematize it? Can we create order to it? Well, postmodern thought says that's all junk. Throw that out. That can't happen. Because think about it. If, if you are God... There can't be a big, one consistent, large story because each of us has our own big, large story. And that's all that matters. And so there is no order. There is no meaning to life. All that matters is you. You're the only thing that matters because nothing can be fully known. Nothing can be fully understood. And so now truth becomes relative. Truth becomes based on your perspective. What do you understand? How do you see things? And what matters then is because it's based on you is for you to have an authentic experience where that authentic experience is you're living in a way that is consistent with and in line with what you're feeling. Why does this matter? Well, because there's a test after this afternoon. No, that's not why. It, it has an incredible uh, importance to us because Again, this is such a subtle thinking, we're not even aware of it. It's sort of like the frog in the pot that the temperature is basically just warming up over and over again. He's not even aware he's being cooked in it. 
We're not aware of the influence that the, the culture, the environment has on our thinking, especially when it comes to God. So let's think about it this way, because I think if we can understand how postmodern thought works, we can have a better understanding of our world. Remember, what's at the center of postmodern thought? It's the self. Hence, we have the selfie. I mean, it really is a new phenomenon. Like, I remember as a kid, when I took photos, I took a photo. I would never include myself in the photo. That just, it didn't work. It also, because I only had about seven pictures and cost a lot of money to develop pictures, and, and you wouldn't want to waste them. But, but nowadays, kids, they, everything's a selfie. Every, they're in the story. They're in the picture all the time. Because that, that now has become the center um, uh, part of reality, the, the center of it all. It explains reality TV, where everyone's seeking their 15 minutes of fame, where everyone wants to be a celebrity. And they, they just want to get on that TV show and act like an idiot to maybe, maybe have some more Instagram followers, maybe, maybe have more people on Snapchat, maybe, maybe have more people on TikTok or Facebook. They're just looking to be an influencer and have this huge following. But what matters now is not what's, what's out there. What matters is what you're feeling inside. And therefore, you do what feels right. You do what, you, what feels authentic to you. And so you have phrases like, you do you, or YOLO. What does YOLO mean? You only live once. So you got you to gotta live in a way that, that is authentic to you. And, and, and not, no one's going to look after you. You have to look after yourself. Because everyone's got their own story. Everyone's doing their own thing. And so it's up to you. <clears throat> so these become the mantras of the day. And it begins to breed entitlement in our culture. This idea now where, where younger people are graduating and they're expecting to, to show up with the corner office. They're expecting to show up with the dream job. And, and the idea that you have to start at the ground level and work your way up, just, no, no, no. You, you don't know who I am. You, you, you don't know what I've, that I'm here, and, and it's my story. And, and so there's an expectation now to have everything kind of handed to them. And if it's not, then I don't know if it's worth doing. And so you have this entitlement culture. You have an idea where everyone's supposed to be the winner. Right, everyone gets the participation uh, uh, badges because we, we don't want to offend anybody because what they're feeling matters. And where my rights as an individual trumps everything. And therefore, you can't say or do anything that might offend me because that, that language, that talk is offensive. That language, that talk is violence towards me. And it's also why I think we live in a world where the average person is thousands of dollars in debt. Because this idea that we just need to lay hold of everything we want right now. And we're not willing to wait for it, not willing to save up for it. We'll just buy it and not worry about the credit card bill to come later. Because again, it's my joy, my happiness, my pleasure that trumps everything. It's also in postmodern thought that we get to redefine words. Whenever you hear about deconstruction, that's what they're talking about, where they, they take the meaning of a word and what it used to mean, and they change it, but not just going forward, but they change it for all time. And so they redefine terms like gender, male and female, 
what's power, what's right, what's wrong. Because nothing's objective. Nothing can be absolute. Nothing can be fully, fully known. And, and therefore, who are you to say what's right or wrong? I'm the one that gets to say what's right or wrong for me. I'm the one that gets to decide what's moral and immoral. I get to decide what's righteous and what's sin. And what's going to happen, it's going to vary from person to person. And that's okay because everyone's a little God in their own little world. And so your truth might be different than my truth. And that's okay because, again, all truth is subjective and there is no objective truth. Stated objectively, by the way. But that doesn't matter. That, that, that dissonance doesn't matter. And so all that matters is that you do what feels authentic to you regardless of what that is. Again, you do you. And that means that if you're not happy in your marriage, then you know what? All you need to do is leave it. Just, just bugger off, leave it. Go find someone that will make you happy. Because again, you only live once. Don't worry about the impact it has on the children, on the community, on society. None of that matters. All that matters is you and your joy, your happiness and your pleasure and don't worry about the wake of destruction in your in behind you. That's the thinking of our culture. That's, that's the environment we live in today. And, and that's why if you, if you look at some of the stats of how life has changed today from just 70 years ago, the, the, the culture, the fabric has, 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 has just crumbled because of that self-centered, I'm the one that matters thinking. Now, the mistake we make here is we go, see, there's our problem. It's postmodern thought. We need to abandon postmodern thought. We need to get back to modern thought where there's logic. And as an engineer, I say, amen. Or even better, maybe, maybe we need to get back to classical Greek. If that's what you're thinking, the answer is you've missed the point. Because that's not our hope. That's not where our answer is. It's not trying to change the philosophy of the day. Because no matter what the philosophy of the day is, that's secondary to what really matters. Which is why God's not overly concerned with the philosophy of the day. He will work through any period of time. In the same way that he worked through times of slavery, he worked through times of kings and queens and the feudal system, he works through capitalism, through socialism, through communism. It doesn't matter. He's always at work. So it's not about trying to create the ideal utopian society and political thoughts. So why am I sharing this little lesson in philosophy with us? Because we don't normally do that. But I'm doing it because I want us to understand the impact of all of this having on us and how, how the environment shapes our story. See, let's, let's put it all together, right? We have our, our nature, our nurture, and the environment. And it crafts a story for us. So let's start with your nature. So you start here born with, with certain physical uh, predispositions, a certain skill set, so to speak. And maybe you're good with, with hands-on things. You're good with tools, and, and therefore you can build things. Or maybe you're good with your mind, and you can, you can code things, and that's what you're building. You're, you're building ideas and concepts. Or maybe you're a good leader. Or maybe you're pretty and you're beautiful. Or maybe you're athletic. Maybe it's some combination of those things. And, and that's what you're looking for. And, and, and really, all of this begins to impact your self-esteem. So if you're super athletic and you're doing well in sports, that makes you feel good about self. 
If you're good looking and you're attractive and everyone wants to be with you or you're the popular because you're dressing right, that makes you feel good about yourself. And you might have high self-esteem. But maybe you're not doing so well. Maybe, maybe you're not the athlete. Maybe you don't have much of a skill set to you. Maybe you're not the attractive person. And so that begins to shape now the part of that story. And again, it's so subjective. Because you think about it, you go back to Marilyn Monroe, you know, in the 50s, she was the, the pinnacle of beauty at the time. But today, she would be considered overweight. And so it's all subjective. Today, you know, to, to be a basketball player like Shaquille O'Neal is huge because you can make tens of millions of dollars. Go back to the 60s and you did that and then you got a second job to pay for it. So it's all subjective. It changes over time. But, but that's all part of our nature. And then there's the nurture, right? That's the family you grew up in, the house or maybe the apartment and, and, the, and the people around you that were, were fumbling their way through life who some were, were doing their best and it wasn't very good and others just didn't care. And it was all about them and they used you for their own pleasure and their own joy. And, and so we're, we're struggling with all that. And so we grow up with, with the hurts and the failures, either our own failures or maybe the failures of other people. Then there's a rejection. Then there's the, the trauma and, the, and maybe the, the bullying you experienced. And then you grow up and, and maybe a boyfriend or girlfriend or spouse cheats on you. Or they, they, they separate and abandon you and they reject you and they say, I don't want anything to do with you anymore. All of this creates these, these messages of shame and isolation. There's something wrong with you. You're not good enough. And then finally, we have this environment where we have a world and a media and a culture that every day is broadcasting to us through TV shows, through movies, through music, now through social media, through books, all these ideas just constantly being presented to us in a way that is just taken for granted. It's not as if they're trying to prove the case to you. They've just assumed it's true. Things like there is no grand meaning to life beyond this life. And so therefore, all that matters is what you make of it right here, right now for yourself. That you are, in fact, God, the most important person in the world. And the only thing that matters now is what you're thinking and important, more importantly, what you're feeling. And so your personal experience is the most important things. And the feelings about the circumstances determines what's true. And so what you feel, that's truth. That's your God. That's what's most powerful now. And so these are the basic building blocks of the story that we believe for ourselves. And again, for most of us, it's, it's just shame and disappointment. I'm just not good enough. I've been hurt time and time again. And, and because feelings are my, are my, my truth teller, and I'm, I'm using those feelings now to, to interpret and understand my circumstances and environment, it now begins to reinforce what I already believe. Think about it this way. Imagine, imagine there's a little girl who's born into a family who already are broken people. And as that, that one book says, hurt people hurt people. And so this little girl grows up in a broken home where, where she's not seen and she's not noticed and she's not loved. 
And then along comes an older man who shows her some love. And at first it feels good. Someone sees me. Someone wants to be with me. Someone thinks I'm important. But that love then crosses some boundaries and very quickly becomes now sexual abuse. Well, now that child's head's spinning because that love was nice and, and maybe even some of the things they did felt good because sex feels good, but, but I know it's wrong and I know it's dirty and therefore I'm dirty. Maybe the person said it was your fault. You made me do it. So this little child, they're not understanding what's real. They, they think it is my fault. I've, I'm the cause of all this. And then it comes out. But everyone blames you because it came out. And so this little girl, she's, she's, she's spinning and she's struggling in all this. And her, her self-esteem and her worth is just completely in the mud. And she's no good and she's dirty and she's good for nothing except for sex. And so now she starts dating people. She's so desperate to be loved. So what does she do? She sleeps with the boyfriends. Sleeps with the date she's on. She sleeps with anyone because basically the trade is, if I sleep with you, will you love me afterwards? Except, does it work? No, it just feels more used, more abused, more not good enough. So what's happening now is, is she's got all of these events, all of this, this, this trauma, all of this nurture, and a world that's telling her that, you know what, if you just play by the rules, you, you'll be okay. If you, if you just work hard enough, if you just do enough, you, you'll, you'll find what you're looking for and you'll find that contentment. You just, you're just not doing it right. More shame, more inferiority, more not good enough. And now that's locked into her belief system that now impacts and influences how she's going to perceive everything else afterwards. So now when someone actually authentically comes to love her, what is she thinking? Well, you just want sex. You don't actually love me. You just want my body. But I don't, I don't trust you. In fact, it's almost scarier when it is authentic love. Because when it's that twisted, dirty love, that's what they're familiar with. And so they know how to handle it. But when it's authentic love, it's so awkward. It's so different. It's like you're actually more of a threat because I don't know where you're coming from. And so they reject the love that was meant for them. They're trying to protect themselves. They're trying to, 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 to make sure they don't get hurt. And so now they're going to approach life in all kinds of different ways. They're, they're going to see despair and hopeless in every situation. Maybe because they have this mindset, they see things like racism and systemic injustice everywhere they go. And again, more hopelessness and despair in this world. Again, they don't trust anyone and, and they put up these, these strong walls and these barriers. And they become victims now. And, and see, victims are people who are believe that they are hopeless, that they have no control on what's around them. They're basically a passenger and others or the world are the drivers and they are trapped and they're waiting for everyone to come and save them, waiting for everyone else to come rescue them. But because it's their feelings that are so dominant, their feelings are determining what's true, it's never enough. It's never going to change anything. And so every, every other event only now solidifies the inadequacy, the worthlessness, 
the rejection, the unloved, the dirty, rotten shame. That's true for probably about 90% of the people. Now, there's another 10% where it's different, but for them, it's pride because they're actually good at the world system. They're the athlete or the smart person or the good-looking person and the popular kid, and they're seeming to succeed in life. And so really, it's just pride, but then they're in the same mess. It doesn't work. And so what happens now in this story that you've, you're hearing over and over and over again every day, this is the story that's running through your mind, a story that's told to you by the flesh that you believe and you accept as truth. It begins to shape our faith. Let's, let's understand this word faith because it's so critical because everyone has faith. Even, even the atheist has faith. See, faith is trust. Faith is dependence. So the question is with faith is what are you putting your faith in? That's what matters. You see, every day we exercise faith. You did it on the way in this morning, right? Right? When you got up and, and you got into your car, you trusted the engineers who built that car. Engineers who, by the way, got a solid 65% in school. <laughs> I know, because I was there, right? Hence the safety factor of three, right? But you're putting your faith in them. You put your faith in the mechanics, right? That they fixed the car properly, that they tightened the bolt and all the bolts properly. And this is the scariest one, you're putting faith in the other drivers. Right, that they're going to stay in their lane and they're going to follow the rules of the road. You put your faith in the chairs when you came and sat down on them. You put your faith in the people who made the coffee, which is why we thanked our host people at the beginning of this morning. Right? Make sure they made it well and there's no laxatives in there and that sort of thing. Right? No, no funny pranks. Ha ha. Right? So we exercise faith all the time. And so, so the question isn't about the size of your faith. It's where you put your faith. So again, the atheist has faith because they've put their faith that there is no God, that they are their own God. Jews, they put their faith in the law and the Ten Commandments. Muslims, they put their faith in, in Islam and following the five pillars of Islam and hoping that they'll measure up one day. We all have faith. The question is where we, where we put it. And so it's not a question of do you have enough or not. It's who are you trusting to love you? Who are you trusting to protect you? That's where we're putting our faith. And again, some of it put it in ourselves. Well, it's up to me. I need to protect myself because no one else will. And so we become self-reliant. It's up to me, and I'm going to make my own way. I'll do my best. And God will do his rest because I'm a Christian, but it's really up to me and my efforts. Or it's, it's in the world. I just got to play by the world's rules. And I, if I'm smart with my money and I work hard and I get promoted and I keep my nose clean, then I'll be rewarded with what the world offers to me. Maybe it's in money and power. So I chase it. More money, more influence, more power, more prestige. Maybe it's in my friends. Maybe it's in a career, right? That, that I have a title attached to my name. I'm a professor. I'm a doctor. I'm a police officer. I'm a fireman, right? All these, these titles that we might try to attach to our name and make us think that we're valuable that way. Maybe it's in our family. 
where we're going to trust our family to be the ones that meet all our needs. I know of so many women that just think, if I just have a baby, then someone will love me. Or maybe it's in a spouse. Because at the beginning, it felt so good that someone actually thought I was special. Someone actually thought I was good looking. I know, it's hard to believe. Someone actually thought I was worth loving. And it felt good until it didn't feel good anymore. And so there's an emptiness because it's never enough. Because what all these things, the career, the money, the politics, the power, the, the, the family, the friends, my spouse, they'll never satisfy what I'm looking for. And so maybe the, the most devious of all this is we, we put our faith in our feelings, where our feelings begin to determine whether I'm okay or not. And so now I got to feel certain things. And when I don't feel certain things, now I, I look to other things. Maybe it's sex. Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's even to the church and ministry and rituals. And maybe I even put faith in faith. See, that's so much in the church. Where, we're, where people are praying and they're wanting healing and then they don't get the healing. And, and what do people say? Didn't have enough faith. Listen, putting faith in faith doesn't work. If I, if I step on, on a millimeter thick ice and have all the faith in the world, it will not hold me. But if I step onto 10 feet thick ice with very, very little faith, like I'm, I'm doing the army crawl across it, it will hold me. Because it's not the size of my faith that matters. It's what I put my faith in. Amen? And so all these things that I'm putting my faith in, they become my God. They become my idols. See, an idol is anything you're looking to to be life to you that's not God. Anything I'm looking to to determine my value, my worth, whether I'm going to be loved, whether I'm important, whether I'm going to be safe, what's going to give me peace, what's going to give me hope. In Romans 6, Paul teaches us that whatever you present yourself to, you become a slave of and you're obedient to. So if I, <clears throat> if I present myself to my feelings, my feelings are my God. If I present myself to my spouse or my job or money or position, they become my God. They become my idol. And they control us. And I'm, I'm back in the garden believing the lie that I can be independent, but it's a lie because I was never created to be independent. I was always created to be a dependent critter. And dependent critters are always dependent on something. And so this world gives you all these options, but it never satisfies because they're not real. They're false idols. So again, what happens when we have this misplaced faith is we become victims to them. I'm out of control. I've done my part, but my gods have not come through. They have not delivered what I expected the way I expected it. And we're dominated by these feelings. Which brings us to our passage this morning. So that's the introduction. <laughs> I kid you not. Fortunately, it's a short passage. It's, it's 2 Corinthians 5, 7. You all know the verse, probably. Maybe not the reference, but you've probably heard the verse or quoted the verse. It says, we walk by faith not by sight, not by what we see, not by what's around us. Now, it doesn't explicitly say it here, but the implication that Paul's talking about is we walk by faith in who? In God. 
and not in our circumstances, not what's going on around us. That's what he's referring to here. And so it's not a trust in our feelings. It's not a trust in our knowledge or our understanding. It's not even a faith in a set of propositional statements about God or about you. We are commanded not to walk or live by a faith or trust in the world around us, even if the temptation is to because it feels more real and tangible. That's why he's talking about we don't walk by sight because it's so real. It's so, it feels so tangible, but it's so temporal and it doesn't promise. It doesn't come through on it because a faith that is a faith in the flesh only results in death. So Jesus said in John 6, 63, right? The flesh profits nothing. In Romans 8, Paul says the outcome of trusting in the flesh is death. It's that emptiness. A frustration. It's like drinking salt water to quench your thirst only to discover you're more thirsty afterwards. There's only life in Jesus. There's only life in the spirit. And so instead, we're to place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which requires a relationship, a two-way interaction. And to be honest, that's why it's so hard. Because if it was just simply, I just sit here like a bump on the log and God shows up and does everything, then I got no part to play in it. I'm passive in all that. But think of any relationship where one is active and the other is passive. How good is the relationship? It's not very solid. It takes two people to be active, to engage in the relationship for it to be meaning to mean anything. And that's what God desires from us. It's what he desired from the beginning. It's what he lost when Adam and Eve sinned and mankind was now separated from God. And he's been redeeming to reconcile us. So that like Adam did and Eve did, walk with God in the cool of the day. Or like Enoch, who walked with God and then he was not. God took him home. That's what he's after. That's what he's longing for with us. The number one response I hear, though, from people with that is that, and, and I think what they do is they, they use this to give themselves permission to give up and to turn now to other things and continue to play the victim is that I don't hear from him. I don't hear from God. I don't, he doesn't say anything to me. He's, he's too quiet. Or, or if he is saying, I don't know what he's saying to me. And you know what? That's a real issue. It's a real thing. And, and I remember as a kid having the same thing. I remember at age 16, sitting on a, on a folding chair in, in my, my, my parents' garage. And it was wintertime. And I had a Bible in hand, and I was just crying out to God. I said, God, speak to me. Tell me something. Are you real? Are you there? And I remember crying, and I was trying to hear from him, and I got nothing. I got nothing at the time. Please understand, it wasn't he wasn't speaking to me. Just I didn't hear anything at the time. It took years later for it to begin to make sense to me. But in that time, I've been learning do you hear the, the, the tense of the verb? Have I mastered it? No, I'm not Josh. I haven't figured it all out. I'm learning. I'm discovering. It's an ongoing thing. And, and what, what has lit my faith afire, what has allowed me to discern and discover who God is are, are a few different things, and they're simple things, like, like reading the word. See, growing up, I was taught you have to read the word for God to be happy with you. And that made it onerous. That made it miserable. And it took all the joy out of it because it was a have to. It was a requirement. I didn't understand 
the beauty of it. I get to read his word. And why I read his word isn't to make God happy. It isn't make, to make God love me more. It's so I could get to know him. So you have to understand the, 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 the Bibles that you have, not in your hand anymore, except if it's in your phone, I guess. It's an autobiography. And why do you read any autobiography? To, dis, to learn and discern the offer, author, to figure out what he's like. And so we, we, need to, we need to reestablish that, that practice of cracking open the Bibles and reading them so we can learn his character. We can discover what he's like. And if you don't know where to start, start the Gospel of John. It's a great place to, to get to know who God is, get to know his heart, get to know what Jesus was like because Jesus is the exact representation of God the Father. So we, we crack open that word and we, we read it and we get to know his, his, his words and his, his character. But it also gives us some idea of when he's speaking to us. See, in John 14, Jesus says, I'm going to send to you another helper, the Holy Spirit. And he's going to bring to your mind the things that I spoke to you. You see, we read the word so that when he is speaking to us, we recognize his word. Oh, I, I remember a verse. I don't necessarily know where it is, but I remember a verse. God, was that you? Is that you speaking to me? And over time, that relationship grows. We spend time in prayer. Oh, that was majestic this morning, Robin, just leading us in a time of, of praying for one another and encouraging one another. But the prayer I'm talking about is just simply you talking to Jesus. And again, it's so hard because it requires me to listen to him and discern his wisdom. But when I start to hear his wisdom, then the next key thing is to actually carry it out, to be obedient to him. Because he is the Lord. I'm not God. Mankind is not God. There's only one true God, and that's Jesus Christ. And so we put our faith in him, and we're obedient to him as his bond slave. And I know it's so hard. I get it, because I understand it. I am dominated by my feelings. I, at one point, I wanted to get rid of all feelings. I, I was convinced that we could put it to a referendum and I could get 50% of the population plus one vote to abolish feelings and God would have to honor it because it's democracy. I was convinced because I was so filled with shame. And those shame-filled feelings dominated my thinking, dominated my outlook, dominated how I interpreted things, dominated how I thought you thought about me. And it was miserable. So I get it. I understand. But the way out isn't to fix your feelings. The way out is to trust Jesus, to not walk by those feelings, whether they're, they're pleasant or unpleasant, but to walk by faith. And here's, here's where Robin's message a couple weeks ago is so powerful. Do you remember that when he talked about authority? He talked about the, the, the temple and Jesus walking into the temple and overthrowing the tables and chasing out the money lenders and, and the people who were misrepresenting who God was. He was chasing them out. And Robin made this incredible connection for you and I. He says, you and I, were the temple. And God's given you and I the authority now to overturn those temples, to cast out the lies about who we are. So we have to exercise that authority. Go back and watch Robin's message from two weeks ago. It's so good. It's so powerful. Because we have to reject the lie that, that you are what you feel. You reject the lie that you're the center of everything. 
You reject the lie that this world says that you, if you just do what it says, you will be satisfied. We reject the lie that we're broken, damaged, worthless, not good enough, and don't have what it takes. And we reject the lie that says God's even disappointed with you. And instead, what we do is we choose to place our faith. Place our faith in a person. Our trust, our dependence in the person of Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. It's finished. It's done. Cheryl, there's nothing left for you to do. He's already done it all. And we're going to put our faith in that. A faith and we believe that he's paid the price for our sins. All of them. All of them. We, we put our faith and believe that he's made a way for us to be reconciled to God. Not through your performance, not through your hard work, not through your determination, but what Jesus did on the cross. We believe that he's conquered death. We believe that you and I, we were included in his death and that the old sinful self was crucified and buried and is gone. That old sinful heart was removed and you were given a new heart. Ezekiel 36, a heart that's alive, a heart that's pure, a heart that's good, this new spirit, this new creation that is who you are, that is already clean and pure and fully acceptable and approved to God. We believe that because of all that, you're qualified now for the Holy Spirit, the first fruits to take up permanent residence inside of us. And that God is both our friend, he's our father, he's our Lord, and he's our king. And we can now submit and be obedient to him and what he says. Let us walk by faith and not by sight. Father God, Your words are words of power and authority. So what people were amazed when, when Jesus walked the earth, they, they marveled at the authority by which he spoke. And what we have recorded is your word. And it's filled with power. It's filled with authority. I, I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would have the courage now to risk trusting that it's true to not let the environment shape us, to not let our, our nurturing shape us, to not let our nature shape us, but to let you and what you say about us and what you've accomplished on our behalf, let that determine who we are and that we can live in freedom, in beautiful freedom, Lord Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to the New Life Fellowship podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more great content, please be sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca, and sign up for our mailing list. Subscribers will receive our The Life in the Apartment ebook that is sure to encourage and bless. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the latest services and additional video content. New Life Fellowship is a registered charity that is supported by the giving of partners and friends. All donations will be received. If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.